And uh, as we landed, the flight attendant came on and said, Welcome to Chicago, home of the 1908 World Series champion Cubs. <laughs> well, listen, anybody can have a bad century now and then, right? We can't be too critical. Everyone can have a bad hundred years now and then. But it's getting pretty exciting, isn't it? Well, it was a birthday party for a grandchild. It's a grandson. And the grandmother was there and her daughter, the boy's mother, and they were all around the table and opening presents. And when the little boy, three years old, opened the gift from his grandmother, he squealed with delight. It was a water pistol, a, a squirt gun. And he ran off for the nearest sink. Well, his mother wasn't all that thrilled with the gift. She turned to her mother and said, Mom, I'm surprised at you. Don't you remember how we used to drive you crazy with water guns? Mom smiled and just said, I remember. <laughs> it's great being a grandparent, isn't it? To get to do things you've waited a long time for. Cheryl and I always said our goal in life was to live long enough to become a problem to our children. We couldn't wait for the day we could sit in the back seat and argue. <laughs> She's sitting on my side. Tell her to move over. Are we there yet? There was a husband and wife who had not gotten along for many, many years. Unfortunately, they were in this relationship where somebody did this while the other person did that to pay them back or to get even, and it just went on and on into the decades till they had been married um, 40, 50 years. And that's when the husband did something that was really inexplicable. They were at one of these stores, big box stores or whatever, a supermarket, and he, 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 he stole a can of pears. So unlike him, but he got caught at the door, and it was very embarrassing and he had to appear in the local court, and the day that he was there, he and his wife had to stand, and the judge said, did you steal, did you shoplift this can of pears? And ashamedly, he had to say yes. And the judge said, well, do you know how many pears were in that can? And he said, I don't know, four, four pears, perhaps, sliced up. The judge said, okay, I'm sentencing you to four days in jail for that. Well, that's when his wife raised his hand and said, Your Honor, could I say something? He goes, Yes, ma'am. She said, He also stole a can of peas. <laughs> There's something in us that just wants to do payback, isn't there? There's just something in us that makes us want to do evil for evil. I don't really understand what it is. I don't know why people do that, but <laughs> they do. I went on the internet, and I was surprised, saddened, I guess, to learn that uh, there are page after page on how to get revenge. If you want to look up the topic, I mean, there's a lot of help. There's a website, 100 Ways to Get Revenge, if in case you were looking for one today. Um, someone once said, revenge is a dish best served cold. Okay, well... Here was one that I found under the 100 Ways to Get Even. It says, don't pull this joke on anyone who is likely to react violently. 
<laughs> I suppose that's a good warning. I mean, probably you ought to stop there and, and not go any further. Anyway, it says, here's how you do this. Get a brand new spray bottle from the health and beauty aisle at your local store. Put a little warm water into it. Sneak up behind your prankster. Pretend to sneeze and squirt the water at the back of the person's head. Immediately put some distance between the two of you. Okay, just 100 ways to show revenge. Well, can I suggest God has a better way for us? than paying people back, evil for evil, wrong for wrong. Indeed, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'd like to read you uh, verses 18 to 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And this is God's Word. It says, Servants, submit yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Some translations say unreasonable. The original Greek word um, is scolio, from which we get scoliosis of the spine. There's a bending. There's something not quite right. There's a curvature to that person's character said to masters who are, are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you now, this is important, leaving you an example. Christ suffered for you and me to leave us an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. This is from, um, uh, from Isaiah. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth goes on to say, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself has bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we may die to sins and live for righteousness. Then back to Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and to the overseer of your souls. Let's pray for a moment. Father, this morning we would ask that you search our hearts. And if there is the desire, the wish, perhaps the compulsion to pay someone back for what's been done to us, we pray that we would listen to these words first and that we would ask ourselves a question that could change our lives, could change everything. What would Jesus do? For those who are in a dilemma this morning, who have brought hurt or wounds, who have brought anger and bitterness and long-standing sorrows, 
what would Jesus do? We ask that you might answer that question for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, there is something better than evil for evil. And that is to remember the example of Christ. By remember, I just don't mean recall. I mean, let the example of Christ take hold of you. Let it, let it, let it overwhelm, overcome. Let it come into the very center of your heart. Draw upon it. Claim it. Receive it, the example of Christ. Why? Well, number one, so we can show honor even when someone disrespects us, when someone dishonors us. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, one version puts it. You see, we need to honor the person or the position when we cannot honor the person. God doesn't let us off the hook when it comes to authority by saying, well, this person misuses it. This person's a bad example of it. Therefore, I'm free. I can dishonor them. I can talk however I wish. I can, I can waste time at work. My boss is unfair. I don't have to play by rules. They don't. But God's Word says no. Even when you cannot respect a person, respect the position that they hold. That's why God would ask us in these situations to respond differently than what our human nature would drive us to do. You see, they will answer to God for how they used or misused their position. There is no one in authority over your life today at work, at school, in your family, you put it in any context, that will not answer for how they used authority, whether to use it properly or to misuse it. And what is our responsibility? We will have to answer for how we responded to authority. What was our attitude? How did we behave? It says, for this is a gracious thing. One translation puts it, when mindful of God... One endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing. It means God's grace is all over us. When we respond differently than the world does or our human nature does, tells us to do. When we respond remembering Christ, when we endure because we're mindful of God, this is a gracious thing. When I was finishing school years ago, seminary, I was raised in a denomination that had conservative and liberal elements to it. I was raised, thankfully, in a conservative church where the gospel was preached. Our pastor, in fact, was an evangelist, and he gave invitations every week, and we had Sunday night services, and the altar was often filled, the kneeling rail, where people could come and, and bring their needs to God. And I grew up in that environment and um, felt like perhaps I was called to stay in this denomination and be a witness to the gospel. It had started out as a very uh, revival-driven denomination and then descended into really just social causes and 
the latest uh, trend in this or that, unfortunately. Uh, at the point of denying Scripture and so many other things. But I felt perhaps I was supposed to stay and, and be, if I could be, along with others, salt and light to bring about a renewal. Well, anyway, I set that as a background to help this story will make more sense knowing that. When I was about to be ordained, the first step in the ordination process, they invited us one evening to dinner. I think it was at a monastery they had rented out, and uh, so we went to the monastery, and uh, we were having dinner, and there was a bunch of us who were going to go through the ordination council and, and be quizzed about our doctrine and what we believed about the church and whatever, and we had to submit our statement of faith. We had to submit a sermon for them to read in advance. Well, over supper, we're eating, and I remember this man who was on the committee, he looked over at me and said, are you Moeller? He's the only one he, at the whole table. He pointed me out. I go, yes, sir. And he looked at me. He said, I have my guns loaded for you. I thought he was kidding. <laughs> you know, I mean, I routinely get threatened at supper. So I didn't think anything, you know. I didn't think anything of this, at least growing up. So I wasn't worried about that. I thought he was kidding. He's just trying to make us all more comfortable. Well, I get into the room when it's my turn and Cheryl comes in with me and we're only there two or three minutes, exchange some pleasantries, and we begin in, in earnest to go over my statement of faith and my, my other documents, and the man interrupts the process. And he said, I only have one question tonight for you, and he kept calling me Moeller. I don't think he, he not even by my first name or, or whatever, just Moeller. He said, well, what is that? He held up my sermon, and he said this, where did you steal this from? <laughs> and I looked at him and said, what? He goes, where'd you steal this from? And I realized he was serious. And I said, well, I didn't steal it. I wrote this for my senior preaching class. He said, come on. He said, it's no good lying to us. Just tell us the truth. Where did you get this? I was still trying to even comprehend the question. I was dizzy from the, where this was going, and I said, why do you think I stole it? This was his answer. You're a conservative evangelical, and you went to a conservative evangelical seminary, and no one from that seminary can write a sermon this good. He said, I've never met anybody that could, so I know it's stolen. So where's it from? He never gave up. I just told him every line that was my own or I attributed it if I did quote somebody. Later, when a senior pastor friend of mine confronted him about his really rude and credible behavior toward me, he goes, well, your man got ordained, didn't he? What do you care? And then he said, someday I'll find it. I'll find it. Okay, what do you do when you're treated that way? Not for any evidence, not because of any wrongdoing, not because anyone can prove anything. They just think they know who you are and they don't like you. They think they know who you are and maybe they even despise you. Maybe because of the color of your skin. Maybe because of your ethnic background. Maybe because of your faith. 
maybe because of the neighborhood you live in. Does, does it really matter? It's all wrong. And it hurts. When people think they know you, and they judge you, and they dismiss you, and they attack you, and it's not right. There's no basis to it. But the Bible says when that happens, we have a choice in how we can respond. We can respond with, with anger. We can get bitter. We can start being filled with self-pity. We can be filled with rage. We can be filled with unforgiveness. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways we can go, isn't there? Now, I have to tell you, I was a member of the state championship debate team in high school. So when that guy said that to me about stealing, I was, I was you know, I was ready to go. And I, I don't know if my wife put her hand on my lap. And, down, boy, down, you know, <laughs> sit. <laughs> so I said nothing. I, I just honored the position. I had trouble honoring the man for what he said and how he treated me. But the Bible says this, we're to continue with doing good even when we pay a high price for it. What credit is it, verse 20, when you sin and are beaten for it and you endure, but when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the eyes of God, the Scripture says. You see, we should never complain of persecution or injustice when we're being corrected, disciplined, or warned, maybe even fired, because we did something knowingly wrong, unethical, dishonorable. In that case, the Bible says we're only getting what we deserve, and there's no credit in that. But it says if you're suffering or being persecuted because you are honest, faithful, true to Jesus and his kingdom, yet you continue on doing the right thing, God is pleased and one day you will be rewarded for it because it's a gracious thing in the eyes of God. Here's what I want to encourage you with. Do you get the idea from reading this passage that God is always watching? That God sees everything? That God follows you to work, to school, into the marketplace, into business, in your home? God follows and so he sees everything that happens to you. And there is nothing wrong that occurs that God does not take note and does not file it and will not deal with it someday. That's a whole different message. But can I promise you this? If not in this life, in the next life, at what's called the Bema Seat of Christ, it will be dealt with if it was not resolved here. Because God is just. But if we remember the example of Christ, we can do exactly what Jesus would do in our situation. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Isn't this wonderful? Leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. That's the name, by the way, if you might recognize it, of a novel that was one of the best-selling novels of the 19th century. It was called In His Steps. It was written by a pastor, it was fictional, by the name of Charles Monroe Sheldon. First published in 1896, the book eventually sold 30 million copies. Now this is 125 years ago. 
30 million. Today, that would easily be 100 million copies in equivalency to our population. The title of it was simple, In His Steps. Subtitle, What Would Jesus Do? Here's what uh, Pastor Sheldon did. He decided to have Sunday night services where he would write a fictional story and every Sunday evening he'd read a new chapter of it as his sermon. And the whole point was about various people in this fictional town, probably in Illinois, makes reference to Chicago at times in the story. And the whole point was the congregation was challenged, what would Jesus do? And people actually took it seriously. They went home, and on Monday, that's how they lived. They went back to business, what would Jesus do? In this romance they were involved with, what would Jesus do? This woman who ran in high society, what would Jesus do? And the book starts to show the incredible impact the life-transformational power of that question, as each person does what no one has seen them do before, what would Jesus do? They actually do it. The lives are changed to people. The community, the church, and the novel is changed. Eventually, the whole culture of the town begins to be transformed because people actually, the Christians, ask the question, what would Jesus do? Think in our time, in our moment of history, where we are as a nation, as a culture, as a church, speaking nationwide. Has there ever been a time where we need to ask the question, what would Jesus do? And then do it. Courageously, lovingly, fearlessly, with commitment and faith. What would Jesus do? Well, how can we know what Jesus would do? We have to go to Scripture to find the answer to that, and we'll read it in just a moment. We need to pray. We need to seek the filling of the Holy Spirit. We may need to consult with other believers, but the point is Jesus does want us to know what he would do, and he wants us to do it. And if we do it, see, obedience is our responsibility. Consequences and results are his responsibility. See, we only have to obey. That's our side of the tennis court. When we volley it back to him, we obey. Now, what happens as a result, that's all his side of the court. And we don't have to sweat it, worry about it, plan it, orchestrate it. God will take care of what happens. If I can tell you very briefly, uh, about a year ago, last May, I had surgery for the first time in my life I'd never, I'd have been in hospitals my whole career, but I was on the other side of the glass. I was on the other side of the rail. Suddenly, I'm being wheeled down this, this corridor that went on forever to the OR to get my gallbladder out. Um, prior to having it taken out, they had thought there was a mass on my liver. One test had shown this big mass. It turned out to be a false positive. But it sure scared me. I'll have to be honest. Um, and they were actually going to look for themselves once they did the operation to see if there was something wrong beyond the gallstone. So anyway, I woke up, got back to my room. When the anesthesia started to wear off, my first question to Cheryl pretty much, what did they find? 
She said, honey, it was okay. It was just, just some gallstones. And I go, okay, tell me the truth. What did they find? She said, honey, they were just stones. And I said, look, I might as well know the truth. Tell me. And she said, Bob, it's the anesthesia talking. I'm not going to continue this conversation. But I'm telling you, you're fine. Well, when it finally did wear off, the Holy Spirit kind of took over. Once the, once the anesthetic was gone, something more important entered me. And as I sat in my bed, I thought, how do I want to spend the rest of my life? I've dodged a bullet here. What could have been very serious was not. What would my children, what would my, un- my, my relatives, what would people remember? And God brought to mind a family situation with my extended family, not my marriage, but my extended family that went back four or five years when my father died. And those of you who've been through losing parents and then the estate and then people get involved thinking they want this part of the estate and this belongs to them and, and things escalate and you've been there, some of you. Lawyers get involved Papers for a lawsuit get filed, and it's nothing but heartbreak. And families get splintered in a hundred different directions by things that they thought they'd never see. Well, some of that happened to my family, and as a result, it had been two or three years since some of us had spoken to each other. And lying there in the hospital bed, the thought, what would Jesus do about this situation? What, what would he want me to do? When I got out, within a day or two, I sat down at the computer and I wrote one of my siblings. And I said, I don't know if you want to hear from me or not, but I want to tell you that it's time we put everything behind us. It's time we forgive each other. It's time we let go. It's time we put this in the past. I said, I remember mom and dad, they were both gone now. I said, I remember they would often say what pleased them the most in life was how their children got along with each other. And I said, what would they say if they knew how we were acting now? And I said, I'm even more worried about what our nephews and nieces and my children are going to think of us when we're not speaking to each other. I said, is that the example we want to leave? That's what they remember about me and you and the others? I said, no, we can't do that. I said, I've just had a a fresh chance to do life again. And I, I want to forgive and be forgiven. I punched the send button, having no idea what how that email would be received. None at all. Or if I'd even hear from anyone. Fifteen minutes later, I got one back. One of my siblings said, I've been waiting, I've been praying for years to get this email. Let's get together. Let's reconcile. Let's be a family. Let's show our children what it's like to be Christians. And we did. We got together. And we've been getting together. And we have fun. And we laugh. And we enjoy and we write each other. And 
It's like it used to be only better. I'm just asking you today, in your life, what would Jesus do? What would he want to do? Given what you've been through and what you've experienced. I do have to put a caveat in this so I'm not misunderstood. Those of you who've been physically abused in a marriage, those of you in a violent relationship or in something that is extreme, I'm not saying continue to endure that. Seek help, reach out, find safety, get counsel. Please, believe me, don't don't misapply what I'm saying today. There are situations where boundaries must be drawn, and even that is part of reconciliation, the first step toward it. But for those of you that are just carrying things you cannot let go of, can I just encourage you to do now what the Scriptures tell us Jesus did so we can avoid lying and speak the truth instead and so we can hold our tongue and not retaliate because we do have an example. Here's what Scripture says. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. Perhaps the biggest mistake we can make as Christians in dealing with wrong treatment or persecution is to assume God will and must immediately deal with it. God, right now, Remember the disciples when they were rejected in that Samaritan village? They said, Jesus, don't you want us to call down fire right now? Let's just toast the place. Let's just leave it glowing embers. And Jesus shook his head and said, no, we're not going to do that. Well, why didn't he? They rejected him. They were rude. They wouldn't receive our Lord. Why not toast? Why not incinerate the town? Well, let me give you some reasons. Number one, and I think the most important reason, is God is waiting so people will come to repentance. Now, I hope that doesn't upset you that God has not punished people you want punished because he's waiting for them to come to repentance. Why shouldn't that, why should you not be upset? Because that's what he did with me and he did that with you too. If you're a believer today, God waited. God put off his judgment God put off his wrath. He he didn't want anyone to perish, including you, so he was patient. So if God was patient with me for all those years till I found him, can I be mad that he's patient with someone else I don't like? Sometimes he waits so the impact of the judgment will have its maximum effect, what the Bible calls storing up wrath. Sometimes he waits because he just waits till wrath reaches a critical mass, and then he acts. Sometimes it's so evil will consume itself and serve God's ultimate purposes. He knows embedded in wrongdoing is its own self-destruction and left long enough it will collapse under its weight. Maybe it's so we might learn to persevere, trust, and walk by faith. Maybe it's so you will receive the maximum reward someday and Christ receive the maximum glory. It's so we can live as if the cross of Christ has changed our lives. He himself bore our sins on his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
Friends, let's remember the ultimate injustice was the cross, bearing our sins when he himself was sinless. He did that so our sin nature could be crucified. We could receive a righteous nature. In other words, there was a redemptive purpose to his wounds that we might be healed from sin, alienation from God, and eternal death. And so now we who have been strained like sheep have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Isn't that a beautiful description of the gospel? That by Jesus suffering this injustice, he brought us home, safely home. The shepherd, the overseer, we've returned to him through the grace that he has given to us. I close with this story. This weekend, we had in our home, as it turned out, two missionaries. They're now in their probably late 60s, early 70s, near retirement. They have a ministry to Native Americans in Minneapolis where they offer free health care and free detox and counseling for alcoholism. And My friend who's a doctor, a medical doctor, would ride his bike and carry a pack of medicine in the Minnesota winter, and he would actually find people passed out under bridges who were living there, and he would give them sort of first responder medical treatment. He goes out to Indian reservations in South Dakota and Canada and Wisconsin and ministers to Native Americans there. But he grew up in another continent, the son of a Moody Bible Institute graduate from Canada and his wife. They were missionaries. His father was a missionary. They were overseas. And he was raised in, a, in another culture. And when he was 12, there was a revolution in this country where his parents were serving and the rebels seized control, and they arrested all Westerners, all missionaries from all over the world that were serving there, and they more or less herded them into a compound in two or three different cities. And for two or three weeks, they were hostages. And he was 12 years old at the time, and he remembers being under armed guard, and they still continued their schoolwork, and they did plays and whatever to pass the time. But as the political situation reached a crisis point, the American government dispatched a rescue team made up of Cuban exiles who had been trained to fight Castro, but they sent them to this foreign country to rescue these uh, missionaries and children. And so they fought their way into this village. A ferocious gunfight took place as these Cubans came to rescue the missionaries, as the tide of battle turned against the rebels, the rebels turned against the missionaries and broke into the compound and opened fire on the men that were there, and three men were killed in the, in the front yard, one of which was the father of my friend Ken, who was with us this week. His father died in his sight in the front yard. Then they came into the house where Ken was, and they opened fire there, and Ken was shot in the hip. Then the rescue forces arrived. The rebels fled, but only after much loss of life and, and sorrow. And so here was a missionary mother, her seven children, six children, and her husband who was gone. 
and her son wounded in the hip. They airlifted him to uh, Germany to an American Air Force base or Army base where he underwent surgery for his bullet wound and they decided it was too delicate to remove the bullet. It would further damage the hip so they decided to leave it. And yesterday when Ken came up our front door with his bags, he walked with a limp all up our, because that bullet is still there in his hip. He's older now. He's near, he's near retirement. He said he's going to keep his doctor's license one more year. And here's the end of the story. Ken grew up in the United States without a dad, with his brothers and his mom. He went to Moody Bible Institute. He then went on to get a B.A. in science, and then he went on to get a, a, a medical degree at Wayne State in Michigan. And then he went back to his country and he opened a hospital. And he ministered to what he told me was about 80,000 people who did not have a doctor in that area, in the region where his father was killed. You see, the cross made a difference in Ken's life. He did not repay evil for evil. He did not return to find somebody and and punish them. He returned to share that Christ bore our sins on the tree. And there is a church, there's a chapel today in the very compound where his father lay dead. And believers this day have worshipped God there and have praised him and the gospel is being preached. You see, when we do what Jesus would do, there's no telling what will happen and how God will use that. How the gospel might flourish. This morning, if you've never received Jesus, can I urge you to do that? If you've never put your faith in his suffering and death for you, if you've never accepted the free gift of salvation, can I by faith urge you to do that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, in injustice, gave his only begotten son that whoever believes will not perish. Can I tell you the simplest example of the gospel I know? If this was a list of all my sins and this was a list of all of Jesus' sins, becoming a Christian is Jesus said, hey, let's change papers. This is yours. This is mine. And when we die and come before a holy God, and you'll say, why should I let you into my heaven? Won't it be wonderful, all of us who've trusted Christ, we hold up the, the paper. No sin. No wrongdoing. Nothing shameful. Nothing evil. My sheet is clean. And God will say, welcome. Welcome to the reward that has been prepared for you since the beginning of the world. Isn't that a great offer? Who wants to turn that down? He takes my sheet, I get his. Let me urge you to do that if you haven't. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you so much that the cross makes right all that was wrong in this world. For me personally, for us individually here this morning, even for people groups, even for nations that will trust you, 
All that is wrong, the cross makes right. And today, Lord, may we leave with just one question in mind. What would Jesus do? And then may we do it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.